blood of my blood. Flesh of my flesh. So tell me, did you have a dream about making it with a TV star? <laughs> Hello, I'm P.S. and I'm here to tell you that Dracula sucks. Tonight, I'm talking about Wes Craven Presents Dracula 2000, written by Joel Soisson and directed by Patrick Lussier. Lucier was Wes Craven's editor from New Nightmare onwards, so I guess that's why he gets to direct and why Wes Craven has signed on to present it. I'm not entirely sure what it means when he's presenting this film. He hasn't written it or directed it or seemingly even produced it. I guess he's just putting his name on it. And if you're a horror fan and if you watched a few films with Wes Craven presents on them, generally it's a bad sign, and that's true here as well. This film has as its production designer Carol Spear and as its costume designer Denise Cronenberg, both of whom worked on a number of David Cronenberg's films. It also has a number of other staff members who worked on Cronenberg's films and all of these people do a good job. It's quite a good looking film, especially in a, from a design point of view, less so from a mise-en-scene point of view. And the reason I'm observing that at this point is because I want to have something positive to say up front about Dracula 2000. This movie starts with The Voyage of the Demeter, which if you're a fan of Dracula, you're aware is the Russian trawler that took the Count from Transylvania to London in 1897. And this is a fairly standard, short montage version of that with no dialogue. You know, a voyage on a boat, beautiful sunsets, boats sailing across supposedly the sea, but pretty clearly actually a lake. And then everybody's dead and rats are eating their bodies and they've clearly been killed by vampires. And in the end, we see Dracula with his cape stalking into Victorian London. We then flash forward to the year 2000, also in London, where we go to Carfax Holdings, another name that should be familiar, and meet Matthew Van Helsing, played by Christopher Plummer. And his assistant, Simon, played by Johnny Glee Miller. Simon has brought Van Helsing a crossbow that fires silver bolts, which is completely appropriate because Dr. Van Helsing completely denies that he's got anything to do with vampires. He says his great-grandfather, Abraham Van Helsing, was just a normal country doctor and had nothing to do with vampires or Dracula, and it was all just a bunch of made-up hooey. Meanwhile, downstairs at this antique dealership, a gang of thieves led by Selena, played by Jennifer Esposito, who's one of the two or three best things about the whole movie, use a number of interesting high-tech gadgets to break in make their way through the gigantic high-tech safe, down through the dungeon corridors into the vault well underneath Carfax Holdings, which protects a silver coffin with crucifixes on the outside, which has death traps protecting it. Despite all of this, it seems pretty clear that these thieves actually have no idea what they're looking for. They're actually there just to get treasure. There's a reason for this. It's not a plot reason, it's a production reason. <laughs> but this is a pretty inept gang of thieves despite their high-tech know-how they blow a hole through the wall into the sewers under london and take dracula's oh sorry and take the silver-lined coffin containing some kind of mysterious booty put it on a private plane to fly to the cayman islands making me wonder why they didn't just blow a hole from the sewers into the vault in the first place instead of having to come through the high-tech vault door and down through the dungeon corridors but as things that don't make a lot of sense in this film go this is just one of them Meanwhile upstairs, Dr. Van Helsing has noticed the alarms going off, run downstairs with what appears to be a single shot old-fashioned pistol, I'm not sure what he, entirely what he intends to accomplish with that, and discovers that his beloved coffin has been stolen. He immediately informs Simon that he's going to need to go off and handle this himself, 
And after pausing just to inject himself with blood out of leeches, he jumps on a plane and flies to America. He goes straight to Louisiana. And as it turns out, that's where the plane has ended up. Because wouldn't you know it, while they're in the air, they've opened the coffin and guess who was in there? That's right, it was Dracula. He kills everybody on the plane one by one, drinks their blood, and regenerates into the form of Gerald Butler, looking rather like a 90s male model, and speaking in a really irritating, whispery voice, like he's trying to start his own ASMR channel. Meanwhile, in New Orleans, Mary Van Helsing, daughter of Matthew, who by this point we have figured out is in fact Abraham Van Helsing, keeping himself alive for a hundred plus years using Dracula's blood, which he's injecting into himself out of leeches. Mary Van Helsing has been experiencing a psychic link with Dracula the entire time, which of course we'll find out is because she carries Dracula's blood because her father's been injecting himself with leeches for a hundred years. Mary is flatting with Lucy Westerman, played by Colleen Fitzpatrick, aka Vitamin C, an actor and alt-rock singer from the band Eve's Plum, who I thought was most memorable in John Waters' Hairspray, where she played the villain. Mary awakens from one of her frequent Dracula nightmares and heads off to work with Lucy. They both work at the Virgin Megastore, which seems like an important plot point because the Virgin Megastore comes up so often in this movie. If I was being charitable, I might call it a motif, because no doubt Dracula would be attracted to the idea of a young woman wearing a virgin t-shirt, as Mary often does in this film. Meanwhile, Van Helsing and Simon are giving chase, and Dracula has risen from the watery depths that the plane crashed into in a bio outside of New Orleans, and has immediately vampirized news reporter Valerie, played by Jerry Ryan. Van Helsing and Simon take down a couple of the thieves, who of course have now been vampirized. Meanwhile, Lucy meets Dracula when he comes to Mary's house. He immediately seduces her. She has probably the funniest line in the entire movie when she reveals where her name comes from. So you haven't told me your name? I have many. But we're all so much more complicated. Than our names. Uh, I, uh. Yes. Let's see. I was named after the Peanuts character. Shortly afterwards, Van Helsing arrives and encounters Dracula himself, who kills him. And then finally, Mary comes home and finds her father's body. Shortly afterwards, encounters Lucy and the other vampire brides, and then Dracula himself, who is very familiar to her from all those dreams. She's only saved by the intervention of Simon, who fires a crossbow bolt at Dracula, which encourages them to explode into bats. There's a bit of running around, going to churches, looking things up, until eventually Mary is kidnapped by Dracula, Simon is captured by the vampire brides, who for some reason don't vampirize him, and Dracula reveals to Mary his true identity. You cannot imagine what I've had to endure. I have borne the very wrath of God. Chosen to suffer like no man before. Who are you? my last sunset on this earth that made me who I am. Let me show you what I have shown no other. He is, in fact, Judas Iscariot, 
who betrayed Jesus in exchange for 30 pieces of silver, thus explaining his aversion to silver and to religious iconography of all kinds. Dracula gives a not very interesting speech in which he taunts a large, very cheesy lit-up cross with Jesus rather neatly painted on it. Thanks to a little bit of trickery, Mary and Simon manage to kill off the remaining vampire brides, and then Mary whips a cable around Dracula's neck, shoves him off the building, and hangs him from the Jesus cross. The sun comes up, and he catches on fire, and is devastatingly destroyed, or at least so it seems. In a coda to the film, Mary has now taken on the mantle of Vampire Hunter, along with her assistant Simon, She's kept Dracula's ashes safe so that he won't be able to rise again. Presumably, she's being set up for sequels in which she is now a vampire hunter and probably has to fight Dracula over and over again because, as we all know, Dracula never really dies. This creates a bit of a continuity error with the actual sequels, but we'll get to that later. Now, the interesting things about this film. Van Helsing and his leeches is quite a nice touch. It's a good idea. Leeches, of course, are old medical implements and using them to siphon Dracula's blood off and inject it and somehow magically be able to avoid becoming a vampire and, and all that kind of stuff is a good idea. The reason that Van Helsing is doing this, of course, is because he's found that unlike other vampires, Dracula seems to be completely unkillable. He's tried everything on him and it just grows back. So he's imprisoning him until he can figure out how to finally stop him once and for all. There's a flashback at a certain point to a trap that Van Helsing sets for Dracula involving a cage and, and a mirror where the lack of the vampire's reflection actually tricks Dracula into thinking Van Helsing is in front of him instead of behind him. That's quite nicely played. It's a, it's a nice scene. Originally, it was going to be the opening scene of the movie. The Judas idea, I'm pretty sure, was actually started here. If you look online, you can find references to an old legend about Judas being a vampire. As far as I can tell, these were planted by a writer in the 2000s in order to promote their own novel where this was the concept and they just seem to have stolen it from Dracula 2000. So as far as I can tell this was an original idea. It's quite a nice one and it's a bit of a pity that it's in such a dog of a film because Dracula 2000 sucks. And there are also various other parallels and homages to Dracula films and the original book and other ideas. You know, Carfax Holdings instead of Carfax or Carfax Abbey or whatever else Carfax was called in the various versions. Carfax, of course, being the house that Dracula buys when he comes to London. The Plain Demeter is a really great idea that isn't very well handled in the film, but definitely has potential. The brides themselves, particularly Jennifer Esposito and Colleen Fitzpatrick, are a lot of fun. Uh, they don't get a lot to do, but whenever they're on screen, they're fun to watch. And in a lot of ways, the film seems to be a big homage to the second to last of the Hammer Christopher Lee Dracula films. Dracula AD 1972, which also updated the character to what was then a modern setting, and which was just as quickly as this one, dated and silly. Dracula AD 1972 looks fun as a time capsule now. I don't know if Dracula 2000 will ever be fun as a time capsule because the kind of things it presents as representative of the year 2000, they're not kitschy fun, they're just kind of embarrassing. Probably the low point of that is one of the pieces of virgin product placement. As I said earlier, Virgin clearly put a lot of money into this movie because Lucy and Mary work at the Virgin Megastore. They wear Virgin Megasaur t-shirts throughout. There's a number of scenes that take place inside the store. 
There's one scene where Dracula arrives in the store and walks through it and every woman in there turns to look at him. For some reason, there only seem to be women in there. They all turn and look at Dracula like he's like he's a guy who's just put on deodorant in a deodorant commercial and suddenly he's irresistible for women. It's pretty funny. There's a virgin van that pops up at one point and the low point is when Dracula is first out and about in New Orleans, which, let's be honest, is mostly played by Toronto, where it's a lot cheaper to shoot than New Orleans. A few scenes were clearly shot there, like there's a sequence where they walk past Jackson Square. I've been to Jackson Square. It's clearly the real place when they're walking through it, or past it, really. Anyway, when Dracula sees a gigantic video screen playing a monster magnet video, a very silly 1990s, early 2000s heavy metal band, it's a very silly, kind of faux-edgy music video, clearly trying to come across as a lot cooler than it actually is. And there's a huge Virgin logo in the corner of it. And Dracula just stands there and looks at it entranced, and suddenly finally says in his whispery voice, Brilliant. Brilliant. And Gerald Butler is a big liability in this film. I've liked him in other films not here he doesn't have the presence to play dracula he struggles with the fangs they give him an overbite that kind of make him look like a simpsons character some of the time he does weird things with facial contortions that just look comical rather than scary maybe if they'd given him a beard or something he would have looked a bit more intimidating but nothing about his performance indicates that he could really pull that off at this point in his career and his voice is a problem. He's just whispering the entire time. And he sounds like he's trying to start his own ASMR video channel. If you don't know what ASMR is, it's people speaking in soft, whispery voices. It's a bit hard to describe. It's a pretty strange YouTube phenomenon. Go and have a look at it and you'll, you'll see what I mean. Autonomous, sensory, meridian response. It's a pleasant, tingling feeling that you experience when you hear unique, soft voices. The cinematography is also quite flat and dated. It looks like television of the period more than anything else. It looks like a music video and not a very good one. Patrick Lussier isn't able to do much with the mise-en-scene, though as an experienced editor, he's always able to give you footage that cuts together well, so the movie flows well. It's just not well shot. As well as the monster magnet video, there's a lot of bad late 90s heavy metal going on in this movie, and it isn't atmospheric. Marco Beltrami has a reasonably good orchestral score with a distinctive theme that runs through this film and its two sequels, but it's overwhelmed by the bad, it's not quite new metal, but it's of, the, of similar era to new metal. And of course, the terrible script and dialogue. The script isn't necessarily the fault of Joel Swisson. And I'll get to that in a minute. But the dialogue is unforgivable. Hey, can I, uh, can I get you some coffee or something? I don't drink coffee. Ah, you know why you never had me, Simon? Huh? Because your brits like to sweet talk and your brits like to romance. Uh, and all I want to do is suck. Sorry about you. <laughs> we sucked and dry. How's this for a concept? Eye for an eye, mate! Never! Ever! Fuck! With an antique stain! I first saw this film quite a while ago and I was very reluctant to revisit it. 
And I certainly don't think I would have watched Dracula 2 Ascension if it wasn't for this podcast. And as it turns out, that would have been a bit of a shame because the second film in the series, which was made several years later and went direct to video, brings back none of the same cast members playing none of the same characters, actually turned out to be quite a bit more entertaining. They filmed it back to back with a third film called Dracula 3 Legacy, which while not quite as good as Ascension, is still quite a bit better than Dracula 2000. Both of these films were written by Joel Swasson and directed by Patrick Lussier, and I'm going to get into those next time. But one of the interesting things is that on the disc for Dracula 3 Legacy, they feature the treatments for all of the films. And I read the original treatment for Dracula 2000, and it is pretty much the plot of Dracula 2 Ascension. And as far as I can tell, the second film is largely the film that they set out to make in the first place. Because what actually happened here, as far as I've been able to assert and piecing things together here and there, is that Joel Swisson and Patrick Lussier sold the script to Miramax's subsidiary Dimension on the basis of it being called Dracula 2000. Because Miramax head Harvey Weinstein, long may he rot in hell, liked the title and thought it would be cool to make a Dracula 2000 movie. But he didn't like the script, and he hired numerous other hands to rework of it. None of whom are credited, but as far as I can tell, they've included Erin Kruger, who I'm kind of an anti-fan of. Erin Kruger wrote Scream 3, the worst of the Scream movies. He wrote The Brothers Grimm. He wrote the second, third, and fourth Transformers films. He wrote The Skeleton Key, and he wrote the American remake of Ringu. The Ring, the one with Naomi Watts. I think he's a supremely untalented scriptwriter, and I think he's a lot of what went wrong here. It also looks like Scott Derrickson, who's the writer-director of Another Dimension film, Hellraiser 5, Inferno, which I actually think is one of the better later Hellraiser sequels, and who went on to make films like Sinister and Doctor Strange. Derrickson claims to have been brought on board by Weinstein to rewrite the script. I don't know how much he actually had to do with the final film, but it was an interview with him where I got the information about Weinstein having trashed the script and kept the title. But as far as I can tell, the basic things that remain from the original treatment are the introductory sequence of, of the thieves breaking into Van Helsing's, stealing Dracula, and the plain Demeter kind of sequence, and the revelation that Dracula is in fact Judas Iscariot. Everything else was turfed. So, join me again next week for the next episode where I'm going to talk about Dracula 2 Ascension. And as much as I've slammed Dracula 2000, and as much as Dracula 2 Ascension isn't by any means going to be one of my top five Dracula movies, I think it is worth a look. So join me then. Until then, good night. Mr. Van Helsing, last of the manifest. Will you be needing anything? No, 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 you go. Okay, good night then. We haven't been feeding her. 